The Reluctant Conformist A book by Richard Cowley Chapter 2, Episode 1 The Cadet A quote relevant to Chapter 2 from Emmeline Pankhurst, 1858-1929, a leader of the British suffragettes. I'd rather be a rebel than a slave. As an army reject, Magnus had to rethink his future and fast. Scholarship places were eagerly contested and being enthusiastically snapped up. Fortunately, there was still the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy and even the Merchant Navy to fall back on. Max seafarers have always been held in high regard and have long populated the British Merchant and Royal Navies. It was no accident that, two centuries ago, in a single year, 29 slave ships sailing out of Liverpool were under the command of Manx Sea captains. One Manx Sea dog, Hugh Crow, in his memoir, The Life and Times of a Slave Trade Captain, restated the oft-expunged fact that the human cargo transported westward were already enslaved prisoners held captive by the more warlike and powerful African tribes. Captain Crow observed that many of the slaves enjoyed a better and more secure life working on the sugarcane and cotton plantations of the Caribbean and the Americas than they could ever hope to have expected at the hands of their pitiless African captors. It was also Crow's contention that these slaves were often better treated than many of the white slaves he'd observed in squalor and servitude throughout the British Isles and on some ships on which he'd served. It's interesting to conjecture why the abolitionist William Wilberforce so vehemently pursued the cause to stop the slave trade throughout the British Empire whilst doing little to alleviate the hardship of his countrymen starving to death in filthy hovels within spitting distance of the Houses of Parliament. British slave traders, taking the passage known as the Triangular Trade, sailed from England to West Africa to procure slaves, then to the Americas where the human cargo was sold and general cargo was loaded for shipment back to England. Many Manxmen were eager accomplices in this lucrative trade, as it enriched local lords and ladies, whilst fueling the illegal running trade, smuggling, which for a generation or two profited all involved, except the British Treasury. Slave ships, outbound from Liverpool, called at the Isle of Man to load their guinea cargo of slave-trading materials. The Manx ports of Douglas and Peel warehoused and supplied these goods, which included beads, cloth, metal bars, looking-glasses, gunpowder muskets, knives, and cutlasses. On the return leg of these trading forays, slave ships homeward bound from the Caribbean or the Americas routinely dropped anchor in Manx ports to discharge a quota of their goods that was strangely absent from the ship's cargo manifest. This contraband, cotton, tobacco, and rum, was the lifeblood of late 18th-century Manx commerce. Captain William Bly, of Mutiny on the Bounty fame, was stationed at the Isle of Man to command HMS Sloop Resolution. His orders were to prevent contraband entering British territories bordering the Irish Sea by policing Manx coastal waters. The objective of this exercise was to stop the Lords of Man and Manx smugglers picking the pockets of His Majesty's Treasury. During Captain Bly's command, whilst based at the island's capital Douglas, he met two people who greatly influenced the course of his life, 
his future wife, Elizabeth Betham, and his nemesis, the HMS Bounty Mutineer, Fletcher Christian. Even though those roguish but profitable days of slavery and smuggling are long gone, life at sea still attracts many Manx recruits, including Magnus's maternal grandfather, Alfred Henry. Harry, as he was known, wasn't raised by his parents, but by a maiden aunt, a common practice in Victorian times. Rather than join the family printing business alongside his two brothers, Harry trained as a marine engineer with the Ardaman Steam Packet Company Limited, sailing to a variety of ports around the Irish Sea. Prior to the outbreak of the Great War in 1914, he ventured deep sea with Elders and Fife's, a shipping company that operated a fleet of refrigerated boats trading bananas from the Canary Islands and the Caribbean. Due to the catastrophic slaughter in Europe during World War I, the lunatics of high command ran a successful recruiting campaign in 1916 to deliver tens of thousands more men to German butchery. Patriotic Harry volunteered, swapping the noise and heat of the ship's engine room for the squalor and whiz-bang depravity of the Western Front trenches. He survived, whilst most around him were massacred. In due course, he was reassigned back to the Merchant Navy because so many marine engineers had volunteered to fight the Bosch that essential shipping services were left perilously short-handed. With Liverpool his home port, Harry and his wife Agnes Maud were obliged to move from the Celtic Norse Isle of Man to become residents on Merseyside's Wirral Peninsula in the county of Cheshire in Saxon, England. On relocating, Agnes Maud was justifiably a touch testy at being denied a vote for representation in Britain's Parliament because she was a woman. The gem-sized Isle of Man, which claims the oldest continuous Parliament, Tinwald, was also the first to introduce universal suffrage. Manx women had enjoyed political emancipation since the early 1880s, over 40 years before Westminster MPs saw the light in Britain's misogynistic Houses of Parliament and granted women the vote for political representation. Unsurprisingly, Emmeline Pankhurst, the early champion of the British suffragette movement, had more than a hint of fiery Manx blood coursing through her veins. Her mother was a Manx girl from Lonnon Parish the first predominantly European community in the world to embrace universal suffrage, was also pulsing with Manx blood. The Pitcairn Islanders, descendants of the HMS Bounty Mutineers, directed by Fletcher Christian, agreed equal rights for all in 1838. Maud had an inquiring mind, and even supported the introduction of Esperanto as a universal language. In her youth, she deliberated upon most Protestant denominations, including the oxymoronically named Christian Scientists. She was initially attracted to this church because the seductive doctrine it championed was that right-thinking people need never die. The problem with this creed remained that nobody, not even the church's founder, Mary Baker Eddy, could pinpoint with certainty what right-thinking actually was. Maud quickly recognized the flaw in this canon, for no matter what peaks of spiritual purity they attained, members of the congregation kept on dying. She eventually favoured the then widely followed and esteemed spiritualist church. Although she never aspired to becoming a medium herself, the church's psychic pedigree nourished her innate superstitious nature. Maud professed to possess the rare gift of clairvoyance, 
which enabled her to discern apparitions where others saw nothing. Practical outlets for this intuitive engagement with the paranormal were augmented by the daily reference to Olmor's Almanac, an astrological yearbook published in Britain since 1697. Maud mingled her psychic gifts with events foretold in the Almanac and guided from the Daily Mail newspaper's horoscope column to achieve a reputation for being able to conjure up an understanding of future events. Her most successful predictions were forecasting the afternoon's weather, which tended to agree with the BBC's meteorological reports. Family mythology had it that Maud was a direct descendant of King Kelly of Peel, a noble lineage of unsullied Manx blood. On English soil, she was an independent and frustrated emancipated woman who ensured that her three daughters received the benefit of the finest education then available. Despite this practical common-sense approach to life, Maud's Manx blood bequeathed a deep superstitious nature that was impossible to suppress. Gypsy wives, peddling handmade copper-wrapped willow or hazelwood clothes pegs, door-to-door, were valued guests at Maud's house. Over a pot of tea, she would cross the gypsy's palm with silver as inducement for the true reason for the gathering, not the sale of pegs, of which she had a bucketful, but the shamanic wonders of soothsaying. Maud would delight in the dark-eyed fortune-teller's reading of the unique lines on her taut palm, the clairvoyance divinations of random patterns of the tea-leaves at the bottom of her china teacup, and, crucially, the seer's astrological interpretation of her psychic aura. What a gift! What a thrill! What a bargain! A genuine three-way cross-reference golden future, and all for the outlay of only half a crown. One of Magnus's primary school classmates was the exotic, sultry-eyed Laura, the daughter of the flamboyantly draped, slow-moving gypsy fortune-teller who exercised her celestial mesmerism at the Onkenhead fairground. He had never crossed Laura's palm with silver, as he had never owned a half a crown, but he would have, if he could have. Some years later, when in his teens, Magnus had reason to examine his own superstitious inheritance more closely. The half-brother of Magnus's schoolmate Dennis had been killed in a road accident, and the two friends endeavoured to make contact with the crash victim across the big divide. Dennis's grandmother was a stalwart member of the spiritualist church, and an authentic medium who, surprisingly, was predisposed to act as a psychic conduit at a séance. The congregation of three sat around a small polished-top table on which the marquetry alphabet, numerals, and the words yes and no were inlaid in a circle on a true believer's talking board. All three placed their index fingers on top of a centrally placed pre-warmed water glass. To evoke the spiritual world, they sang from hymn sheets, during which the self-conscious sixteen-year-old lads had trouble stifling laughter and keeping their faces straight. As the third hymn reached its crescendo, however, the atmosphere in the room changed subtly. Kim, Dennis's mongrel dog, which had been contentedly resting in front of the open coal fire, suddenly sprang up wide-eyed and scurried out of the room with its head down, its ears back, and its tail between its legs. At the same time, the glass began to whiz around the table, 
causing the blood to drain from the lad's startled faces. Contact was made, questions asked, messages spelt out, and doubts challenged. Magnus was pleased that neither Sitting Bull, nor Black Hawk, nor any other popular redskin chief was evoked as a channel to the great spirit world. That evening, all witnesses from beyond the grave identified themselves as deceased relatives of those present. Magnus attended one more seance after this episode, and instead of remaining a vocal sceptic about his grandmother's spiritual beliefs, he adopted an open-minded attitude towards mystical phenomena, including contact with those passed on. 